Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval terms apply building a portfolio with fidelity basket portfolios is kind of like making a sandwich it's as simple as picking your stocks and etfs sort of like your meats and other topics and managing it as one big juicy investment mm, now that's pretty good learn more at fidelity.com baskets Investing involves risk, including risk of loss. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSC SIPC. Oh, hey, it's your internet dad. I'm here with facts about things you don't know you care about yet. Allie Ward, I'm back with an episode of Ologies. It is not about Valentine's Day because if you are coupled, you have had a lot of quality time together this past year. And if you're not, it has been a year of maybe Zoom dates and Googling DIY hug machine plans. So we're just not doing that this week. Okay, there's no episodes about matrimoniology or sexology. We had those in previous years. And yes, they'll be linked in the show notes. But this episode is not about that. It's not about roses or chocolate. It's about not chocolate. It's about undersung trees. It's about something perhaps right over your head that you're about to be obsessed about. It's about carob. Yeah, carob. Stop. Okay, first, thanks. Thank you to everyone on Patreon. I gushed about you in a recent article that I will link on my website. And heads up, you can join Patreon for a one tiny dollar. And thanks to everyone who's subscribing and posting on social media, texting your friends about the show, leaving reviews. I pick a newly left one each week, such as this one from N.K. Shepard, who says that Ologies is the best thing they got from an ex. And they say, this recommendation is from an ex's friend, and it's the best thing I'm left with. Incredibly fresh, entertaining, and educational. Not an easy feat. Also, thank you, N.K. Shepard. If you're single, there is a Flirtology singles group on Facebook. I'm just saying. Then I wink at you. Okay, carabology. This is indeed a word. It has been used just one time in the literature. It was in a 1945 LA Times article by a columnist who wrote... Quote, in his book, Character Study of a Carob Tree, Dr. Arboreal Snodgrass, a carabologist of the nth degree, says they is a tree of the Serotonia Siliqua. And then it goes on to describe the carob tree. So yes, carabologist used in a 1945 newspaper. It's a word. So carob itself, though, comes from a root word in Aramaic, caruba, meaning carob tree or carob shrug. It's also related to the Hebrew carob for carob. Does that help you? I don't know. But once I had found out that carabology had been used, it was on with this Davis-based California carob expert. So she studied in her undergrad art and humanities, but has had a second career as a musician and then decided to go back to school to pursue STEM. And she launched her own research into the carob tree, which she continues as she gets her master's at UC Davis working in almond development. And she's passionate about plants, about the underdogs under our noses, and above our heads, and we chatted about everything from Haagen-Dazs to cupcakes and pods, potassium, the culinary horrors of the 1970s, fiber, the drought-resistant resolve 
of Carob, how to find one, when to pick the pods, what to make from them. We also talk about cheesecake, rum, fungus, diamonds, and most importantly, how Carob is about to make a comeback right into your mouth and your heart with botany nerd, outspoken advocate, and Carabologist, Megan Lynch. body personally uh phenotypically i'm very irish (laughs) so so being in a place with you know that's not too hot you know the ideal temperature for me is like about 75 um i love i love uh you know a reasonable amount of rain a reasonable amount of fog i love all that stuff and when i went up to davis uh last fall i was living down there again so it gave me a basis for comparison in terms of how much had changed you know as opposed to people who live there the whole time the change is so gradual it doesn't they don't see it but for me Mm -hmm. it was it you know there were definitely things that were really dramatically different that's such a scientist thing to say it gave me a basis for comparison Spoken like a true scientist. Uh, have you always wanted to be a scientist? No, it's not something that I, I mean, I always took science, uh, but I have to say, I mean, where to start with this? I'm disabled. I became physically disabled at 29. And as anyone who lives with them knows, not all disabilities that are physical are visible, and not all disabilities are even physical. And Megan is an amazing advocate for all kinds of folks, and I actually started following her when I got wind of the disabilities in STEM hashtag on Twitter. And like many people using that hashtag, she didn't think that she belonged in STEM, despite her love of it. I still don't have the money to like get an official diagnosis, but I'm pretty sure I have dyscalculia, which is... Is sort of like dyslexia for math, you know, and spatial mm-hmm. things. And mm-hmm. so much of the way uh, science is, is taught in junior high and high school, you know, and certainly the, the messages that we get from society at large is that if you're not excellent in math, don't even consider going into science. Yeah. And so I think for that reason, that's why I didn't really consider it as an option for me. So Megan was readjusting to life after becoming disabled, and she says the reality for folks living with a disability, visible or invisible, is that a lot of jobs are deemed by others as inaccessible to them. And she says that sadly, the employment levels and income levels tend to be lower, and it really drives those populations into a situation where finances are a struggle. In fact, I was looking this up and today found out that Section 14 of the Fair Labor Standards Act states that employers can pay employees with disabilities below the minimum wage. And in order for the sub-minimum wage to apply, it says the disability of the worker must directly affect their productivity in their given position, and that the disabilities affecting productivity can include blindness, mental illness, developmental disabilities, cerebral palsy, and alcoholism and drug addiction. So since this section was enacted in 1986, folks with disabilities of all kinds have been legally paid below minimum wage for their work. So just feel free to pause this and go break some plates or grab your collar and rip your shirt off or crush some metal in your hands or perhaps tweet your congressperson because that is disgusting. Anyway, so Megan, who became disabled in her 20s, was trying to figure out what to do. When I first went back to community college, I was thinking I was just going to brush up the skills I was rusty on and then look around for what 
I could retrain in. And then within a semester, I was I, I took a botany class as well as a environmental chemistry class for non-majors, just simply to you know for my own interest. And uh, by the end of that semester, my uh, botany teacher had sort of pulled me aside and said, "Hey, you know, <laughs> you're good." And I had actually pulled her aside and said, "Look, I'm." You know, I'm trying to consider what it is I can do, and I don't want to do something that's completely unfulfilling for me because I've actually done a lot of that in my life already. Although jobs that I can see for people in horticulture, you know, even the most advanced jobs, they want you to lift 50 pounds, you need to be certified for forklift work, blah, blah, blah. Is this even possible for me? And mm -hmm. she says, yeah, I think you could do lab science. Oh, so you kind of got discovered almost. <laughs> 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 well, I, 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 I guess, I mean, it's, it's just that it took somebody to make it clear to me that that sort of pop uh, idea of what science is, is not necessarily the way science works on a daily basis. That, does, that doesn't mean that it's easy for a scientist with disabilities, mm -hmm. um, anything but, but, uh, but the, the fact is, and it, even at that same institution, there was another prof that I was taking chemistry from who was like, why are you even going into science if you're not good at math? Mm. And uh, yeah, I know, <laughs> which is really rather a ridiculous thing because it, 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 it's like, you don't have to be the person in the lab who's in charge of all the calculations. Mm -hmm. You know, even if, yeah. we, even if we didn't have computer programs into which you just plug variables. <laughs> <laughs> but for some reason, you know, there's that sort of gatekeeping. And I think one thing that helped me a lot besides that uh, professor taking me aside and, and ha expressing confidence in me was the fact that, you know, I was already on Twitter to uh, before I went back to school just to promote my album. And so I, I switched to sort of using my Twitter account to just following as many scientists, particularly plant scientists, as I could. Megan credits some of her resolve to the working scientists she follows who were brave enough to come out and say, hey, math isn't my passion or my strong suit, and that just have their work double-checked or focus on qualitative things. And we heard this very thing actually from the excellent Dr. Kaylee Swift of Corvid Thanatology. And in that episode, she discusses her ADHD, and she has gone on to be a huge star in her field. It, the fact that people were willing to admit, yeah, I'm not that that stereotype you know we have people in science who are complete whizzes at it and that's great it's really it's important for the type of work that demands that but it doesn't mean the other sides of science don't always need that all the time you're working in a team and everybody right. has their own strengths when it comes to botany and and music i'm sure that they fulfill different things for you but is there anything that's similar about them when you think about projects that you work on or anything that excites you about both kind of in the same way? Gosh, I suppose for me, when I'm singing or when I'm singing in front of an audience, I'm very much present in the moment. And when I'm doing field work, working with plants or when I'm gardening or that is about the most, you know, I don't find meditation easy. My brain talks to me a lot. Mm -hmm. So something that gets me out of my own head is very much, you know, doing that kind of observation of nature does that. That's a really beautiful thing. That's got to be uh, such a great incentive to do field work too. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's also something that, you know, 
doing this work where I chose for logistical reasons working on street trees, it brings me into contact with what those trees and what public trees mean to people. And certainly there have been studies in terms of the mental health benefits of living someplace where there's plenty of greenery. It's clearly not just working for me, that sort of calming, meditative aspect to being around a tree that takes you out of yourself and you can just observe the wind going through the trees or you can hear, you know, like outside my door right now, there's a walnut tree and you can hear the uh, sound of the squirrels uh, eating the Mm -hmm. walnuts. (laughs) (laughs) And you said street trees Mm -hmm. in particular. How do you differentiate a tree tree and a street tree? I call something a street tree if it is something that is planted usually by the city in in the little hell strip that's in front of people's yards. <laughs> <laughs> you call that a is that called a hell strip or do you just call it? A <laughs> that, no, that's one of the things. I mean, it's not the official name of it, but it's something I I sort of picked up. For, there's a blog called Garden Rant, I think, that first introduced me to that. Uh, and, and, you know, I mean, it, it it can be a heaven strip, too, but for a lot of people, it's a hell strip. <laughs> Megan says that generally the city is responsible for the hell strip, but sometimes the homeowner will just go out and plant something in there and, you know, nobody cares or catches them. Maybe a business will prune some branches that cover their signage or just chop down a tree without getting caught. And then there's nonprofits like tree people who sometimes care for the street trees if the government is neglecting them. But Street trees are all over, which makes them both familiar and intriguing, but easy to get to. So I needed some aspect that I could study that was nearby, that was inexpensive for me to study. And that's when I remembered that there had been carob trees near my grammar school and that there were in our region uh, a number of street trees that were carobs. And there's a, there's a tree fruit that I can study 365 days a year. So that was my initial approach to it. Ah, and I perhaps you're biased, perhaps you're not. <laughs> Is carob the best street tree? <laughs> well, <laughs> but I, I think I think for any species, the you know they always the 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 cliche thing is right plant for the right place. Mm. So, carob is very good, and I would say it's an ideal tree to plant in coastal and some valley parts of California. Once you start getting north north where the winter temps get down below twenty. Uh, it's not a good good thing to plant. What is a carob tree? It's a member of the Fabaceae family. So that's the same family that, you know, the beans we eat come from. Mm-hmm. It's a very large family. Some of the family does what's called nitrogen fixing. And the, it used to be called the leguminosae. Oh. So le- they're legumes. Ah. And carob is in the genus Serotonia, which only has two members. So it's one of two members of that genus. Oh, wow. That's tiny, right? Yeah, it is. It's it's really an oddball in a lot of ways. By the way, I heard the genus Serotonia, and I wondered if it had any kind of shared history with serotonin, the neurochemical that keeps us chipper. But Serotonia is spelled with a C, and it's actually closer to keratin, coming from the root for horn, in case you feel horned up for etymology. Um, for more on serotonin, by the way, which comes from the word for serum, you can listen to the molecular neurobiology episode with Dr. Brain, aka Crystal Dilworth, PhD. But let's resume the legume chat on this, what has become a pod pod. It's an evergreen tree. 
It's native to the Mediterranean, which is one of the reasons it does well in California, which has a Mediterranean climate for the moment. Climate change is real. Um, (laughs) 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 It's what's called dioecious, which means that it has sexes. It tends to fall broadly into male or female, although there are some that are called hermaphrodites. And what they're referring to there really is the flower parts that Mm -hmm. the tree makes. And uh, the females and the hermaphrodites produce pods, and the Mm -hmm. pods are very useful. You can use the whole pod and the seeds in various ways. I'd like to eat the whole thing. And are you allowed to collect carapods if it's a street tree? Can you harvest them? Yeah, people do. Um, I mean, honestly, even though people, homeowners tend to get very possessive, of things mm-hmm. that are in that hell strip, <laughs> but even if the if the homeowner planted it, the hell strip is not their property in most places. So mm-hmm. yeah, you're within your rights. I would just say you know be polite, don't leave a mess, don't you know climb on people's cars or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, yeah, no, it does happen. And they're obviously edible because all of us know carob as chocolate's weird, less offensive cousin, kind of <laughs> right. <laughs> Carob is called in as a substitute, correct? Well, that's how we've come to use it, but it's really a rather recent development, uh, relatively speaking. Oh, yeah? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's very recent. I mean, if you think about it, what we think of as chocolate, that didn't Mm -hmm. even develop until the late 19th century. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, in the in the sense that we think of it, in terms of like this bar that is that is processed and conked, you know, and that it's made with cocoa butter the cocoa butter in chocolate is from cacao it's not from coconut you know Mm -hmm. um but it's just processed in this very smooth way where those things two things are put together that's more of a mid to late 19th century development whereas prior to that you know if you get like mexican hot chocolate like ibarra or something and you have these cakes that are together that's much closer to what chocolate was for years P.S. If you must know, which you must, the etymology of coconut and cocoa, it's about to go from confusing and muddled to just adorable, sort of. So cacao and chocolate and cocoa, which is a highly processed form of raw cacao, those all stem from an indigenous Mesoamerican word used to describe the cacao plant, which does not have nuts, it has seeds. And coconuts, tropical coconuts, are neither cocoa or nuts, they're actually something called a droop, which is like an apricot or a peach or a cherry. Cocoa in the word coconut comes from the Portuguese word for boogeyman or hobgoblin because of its three dots that look like a creepy skull. So if you ever again order a pina colada, just know that you're sipping the oily blood of a hobgoblin droop. Ta-da! So chocolate is from cacao, which is not coconut, which is not a nut. None of these things are carob. And frankly, carob doesn't give a shit. It never asked to be involved with any of those theatrics. Do you think that humans were yumming up on carob before chocolate, broadly speaking? I, I don't want to say that because, you know, the Aztecs and, and other indigenous peoples of the Americas were using cacao, you know, for ages and mm-hmm. so even the things that we think of as being chocolate, that, that process yeah. didn't develop till later, but certainly it was an ex- extremely important drink and item in their, in their culture. Sure. So I really just think of it as a parallel thing, which is that in the Mediterranean where the carob is native, 
people were using carob in the various ways that they use it without even knowing that such a thing as cacao existed. Mm. And likewise, the people in the Americas were using cacao and it was taking the place that it takes in their society without even knowing there was such a thing as the Mediterranean, this thing called carob. Because of my background in the humanities, you know, I immediately started not just looking for botanical information, but looking for historical information. And if it leads me down to, you know, gastronomic history, then I go down that road. But I'm not an expert in gastronomic history or, you know, so mm -hmm. I'm sort of accruing the knowledge as I can get it. You know, the indications I'm seeing are that certain religions that had issues with stimulants might have been the reason why carob was grasped at as a chocolate substitute. Mm. because okay. the chocolate was forbidden to have because of it has some stimulant properties. I never connected it until right now that growing up, my LDS friends who were in the Mormon church ate carob for religious reasons. I never got that. My friend Lizette always had tiger's milk bars as a snack in her lunch, and those are coated in carob. And like a big milk chocolate bar, which is about 100 grams, has about as much caffeine as a Coke. Carob has none. Also, as an American, I am deficient in the metric system, but I just found a website called 100-grams.blogspot.com that shows you what 100 grams of a bunch of different foods look like. It's so helpful. However, they do not feature any carob products. These pods that are on the trees, you said you can use the pod as well as the seeds? Yeah. In fact, actually, when you're talking about, you know, quote unquote, chocolate substitute. Mm -hmm. What that what's being eaten there is actually the processed bits of the pod itself, not the seeds. <gasps> really? Yeah. No yeah, way. I never would have guessed that. <laughs> <laughs> you can eat them straight off the tree. Um, I mean, if they're not too old, they won't be too tasty if they're several years old. Uh, but <laughs> if you get like that year's crop, it's kind of, you know, a little, uh, I don't know how to describe the the texture right. Um, it's almost like the texture you would have in a macaroon. If you crack the the pod open, inside is a sweet pulp. I had no idea. <laughs> I had no idea that you could even do that. Okay, how do you know? What if you have a carob tree on your street, mm -hmm. on your hell strip, and you have no idea? How, how can you tell? What do you look for? What, what defines a carob to look at it? Yeah, if you were to, because okay. I'm sure that when you are running around Davis, you're like carob, 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 carob. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> People probably go past them all the time and have no idea. Yeah, no, that's true. Um, well, they have what are called compound leaves, which is that instead of just that one sort of, you know, bow shaped leaf that's like most people draw if they're drawing a leaf. Um, mm -hmm. It's a leaf that's composed of leaflets. And that can vary anywhere from four leaflets to leaf to 12 leaflets per leaf. Mm -hmm. um, and the leaflets are elliptical and they tend to come, they, they're mostly opposite each other on the leaf itself. It's a sort of leathery, dark green color. When they're mature, and a lot of the trees that were planted around Southern California as street trees are 80 to 100 years old. They, they get to about 25 to 30 feet tall. They tend to be more gnarled. There are ones that are straighter, of course, but they, I mean, they're really beautiful to look at for that reason. They're, they're, uh... And then the dead giveaway would be if you're seeing pods coming from it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but the difference between a shrub and a tree and a bush mm -hmm. are carob 
trees, big shrubs. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, the ones that were made into street trees, Mm -hmm. they're literally made into that in the sense that all throughout his life, somebody's been pruning its lower branches off and like to select selecting one of the trunks for a trunk. Mm -hmm. But if you left them alone, you'd probably get more than one trunk. And it would still grow to like about 25, 30 feet, however many feet it is. It would just be like this bushier thing rather than a lollipop. So, okay, fun history. <laughs> During the Depression, Seventh-day Adventists planted a bunch of carob trees in an L.A. suburb called Pasadena, hoping people would eat them and never have to go hungry. But people were like, what are these turd trees and why aren't they chocolate? Looking a gift legume straight in the pod mouth. And if you are dying to know yourself where your closest carob tree is, you can go to inaturalist.org. And I did, I found some within two blocks of me. And now I want to go say hi and hug them. And see if I can nibble on their offerings. Sure, they're in season during the late summer and early fall, but Megan says if they're on the tree still and no one is fighting you for them, just pocket what you can. The seeds. What do you make with the seeds? Well, have you ever picked up uh, and looked at the ingredients of yogurt or cottage cheese or ice cream and seen an ingredient that says locust bean gum? No. Locust flim flam about to be busted. I have a feeling I know where this is going, though. (laughs) Yeah, locust bean gum or carob bean gum, that's made from the seeds. Oh, my God. Is there a lot of, like, uh, fiber in them? Is it What what makes it gluey or sticky or gummy? Uh, There's a a substance in it called galactomannan, and it's a long-chain sugar. And when you have these sort of long-chain kinky sugars, and I mean in terms of the, the shape of the molecule... Mm-hmm. Um, then it means that they kind of lay on each other in a way that is not, you know, it doesn't collapse very much, right? So it thickens whatever it's in. It doesn't have a strong taste on its own. So it makes it a perfect thing to put into something that, that you like perfectly well. You want to taste the taste of that item, but you also want that item to be thicker and easier to handle. I remember when yogurt really started becoming more popular in a mainstream way when I was young in the 70s. This taught me that I don't read labels enough. You don't play yogurt. Get a little taste of French culture. Mm-hmm. And uh, for some reason, they just decided that we needed something thicker. <laughs> so, <laughs> so they thicken it up. And carob bean gum or locust bean gum, as it's more commonly called, LBG, locust bean gum, that's vegetarian. And I believe it's also, you know, as long as it goes through the right authority and gets approved, it's kosher. So oh. it makes it something you can use in a lot of different products. And it is. <laughs> well, why locust bean gum? Does locust, do they just love carob trees? Locust flimflam about to be busted. Another common name in English and also in German and other things for carob is St. John's bread. So in the Bible, there's a thing where, you know, I, I think it's John the Baptist rather than John the... Uh, gospel writer, but uh, that he was out in the desert and he was living on locusts and honey. And the locusts that they're referring to there are carob pods. Oh, he wasn't eating grasshoppers? No, he wasn't. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of protein, though. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. Like from the locust problems they're having in East Africa and other places right now, you know, you you definitely go, well, yeah, it would be nice if we were all cooler about eating that because it is protein. Yeah. It would sort of knock two birds out with one stone if you mm-hmm. <laughs> without having to kill a bird. Just <laughs> the locusts. For more on eating bugs, feel free to listen to the wonderful 
entomophagy anthropology episode back in January 2019. But getting back to Megan's research, she started to gravitate to this scrappy, hardy, underloved tree. So I just thought, okay, um, there I know that where these carob street trees are. I can start looking around to see where other locations are in LA area that are close enough that I can visit on a reasonably frequent basis. Mm-hmm. And I just went out there literally with a clipboard and a pencil and mm-hmm. um, and just started writing down everything I noticed about the plant. Uh, and I think I may even have done that before I looked up anything more about it, um, so that I could keep you know initially keep very fresh in terms of what am I seeing here. Looking good. But I did, of course, soon go to the web. And this is in 2013, and there was a great deal less about carob on the web than there is now. But both then and now, I was sort of astounded that a species that I knew had been around for so long and had been known for so long, had been uh, semi-domesticated for so long, that there was a very little good authoritative information either in horticultural gardening kind of side of things or the horticultural science side of things Mm -hmm. and that just was really odd to me i mean how could you be around something all the time and like nobody's choosing to actually study it yeah (laughs) (laughs) i still can't really answer for you why that is uh and that's why like when i do a presentation on it i mean you know, I say it. It's it's like the Rodney Dangerfield of the of the rare fruit world. You know, because it, do, it don't it don't get no respect. I mean, I don't get no respect from anyone. I love Rodney Dangerfield, and I love you for that. <laughs> yeah, somebody was using that. Uh, somebody was using a GIF of him the other day, and I'm like, oh, I gotta get, I gotta take that from my presentation. That that sort of tie tugging motion, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, amazing. <laughs> um, So by looking online, what I could find were a lot of sort of myths that would get um, uh, promulgated about it. And what I mean by that is that if you're saying that if caraba takes 40 years to become mature, right, to be able to even bear its first fruit, well, then I want to see your citation for that. I happen to know that was extremely unlikely to be true. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But people repeat that because there's a sort of, um, I don't think it's literally from the Christian Bible, but it's, it's, it's from... I think a Judaic text that's sort of like largely that, you know, Old Testament stuff was taken from or, or, or like the tales of some rabbi or something. And, it, and in that tale, it says it took 40 years, but, you know, 40 is also a, a name, a number that we see crop up over and over again because it has, you know, 40 days and 40 nights, um, 40, day, 40 years out in the desert or whatever, you know. So it's more of like a symbolic number. It really doesn't have to do mm. with what the carob tree does itself. It's just that people repeat it so much that they don't even link to like where there's an authoritative source but you know Mm -hmm. they'll say oh well carob carob seeds all weigh the same and so therefore the word that we use for carrot you know it was used for measurement and therefore 24 (gasps) carat carrot comes from the word carob oh my gosh that's what they say actually they Mm -hmm. are very similar but they're not like you know You wouldn't want to use that in any kind of modern context. (laughs) It's not like a metrological standard. You know, if you're on Gilligan's Island or something and there's a character there, (laughs) then maybe, yeah. Oh, my God. Um, So there were a lot of things like that. And then the other thing that happened was that I kept coming across this name of this guy named Dr. J. Elliot Coit. And I would notice that some of the few things I could find on Carob that were informative were from this guy. And I was lucky that even in 2013, 
the California Avocado Society or whatever the successor organization was to that had put up PDFs of some of these old newsletters and things that they had. And Coit had written quite a few articles. Coit is super important in the development of avocados as a commercial product, which was really centered in Southern California in the early 20th century. Oh. So yes, Dr. J. Elliott Coit was the granddaddy of California avocados. There you go. But he had a sweet spot for our friend Carob also. He had put together a Carob demonstration orchard in San Diego County, starting in about 1949, I think it started, and mm -hmm. going for a decade or two before his money ran out and that sort of thing, where he was trialing the best Carob. And so they had gone around the state where there were already lots of carob trees planted because it's it doesn't need a lot of water. And in the days before we had huge irrigation projects here in California, that was a perfect tree to be planting because it provides a lot of shade. It provides pods if you want them, if it happens to be a female or a hermaphrodite. And they're really tough through even prolonged drought. So once they're established, they're, they're very tough. So they went all over the state kind of trying to find superior specimens of carob and they, and they took cuttings of that to propagate. And then they also imported the best ones that existed in the Mediterranean, and they trialed those carob over about a decade and a half or something in San Diego County. It led into just really interesting stories about world history, California history. In the 20s, uh, there was a short-lived <laughs> sort of real estate um, I won't call it a boom, but you know, at the same time, they're trying. There was a real estate boom around citrus. They were trying to get people to come out here from back east and, be, you know, make a million dollars as citrus moguls. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> well, there was a sort of smaller version of that done for carob, and uh, Coit was convinced that that had ruined carob's relationship because a lot of people who weren't able to make a go of it the same way that you know maybe at least was being advertised for citrus. There was a period in the 20s where, where carob was highly popular, and so not only was it being planted more as a street tree and a public tree, but it was also being tried as an orchard tree as a crop. So one of the interesting things was in these archives is seeing pamphlets of them going, you know, make your fortune in carob. <laughs> We've got this turnkey operation for you. We'll provide the trees. You do this. You know, you can see our agent and blah, blah, blah. And here's this photo of this bakery. And all they're doing is turning out carob bread, you know. <laughs> Just this really weird, you know, like they're definitely novels and films that have sort of that people enjoy a lot that, that that really focus on that period of early 20th century Southern California where you know it was just wild with all sorts of weird stuff going on yeah and, and that was one of them <laughs> oh my gosh like a get rich quick plant carob yeah exactly uh, yeah yeah the pods of the future oh my god that's amazing and so and then it did it take off in the way they expect did not so no, much. No, no, no. I do know that Coit was of the opinion that the experiences people had had with the way that that advertising was overblown uh, had soured people on Carob. And I think part of the problem that was existing in Southern California, it's not, I, I literally, just like Coit, I think you could have made a go of it. It's really all mm -hmm. about how you do it. So a good example of like somebody doing what Cali California could have been doing this decades ago 
And even now, it would be a good thing for California to get into because carob can be grown on ground that other that other plants can't handle. Even some of the even some of the ones that don't use as much water are still not tough enough to handle some of the stuff that carob can handle in terms of how poor the soil can be. And carob mm. can still give you a crop. So it makes a lot of sense in this in the day and age where you know we have more intense weather going on. We have more intense droughts. What coit knew was a problem and what probably was a problem for people establishing anything here in the 20s is that we didn't have the machinery that there needed to be to do what's called kibbling and that's what is kibbling (laughs) well (laughs) yeah it's called kibbling um it's basically a machine that breaks the pod into pieces so and then extracts the seeds from those pieces and separates out those those pod pieces from the seed so the Mm -hmm. seed can be processed for locust bean gum, which has been used, you know, even before they were putting it in yogurt, they were using it to like, have you ever bought fabric and, and the fabric is stiff? Yeah, yeah. That stiffener is called sizing. And uh, I don't know if that's currently what's used, but certainly in the past, carob uh, bean gum could be used as sizing for fabric. Oh for my gosh. Okay. So we've figured <laughs> out a way to to have all of these different uses for different parts of the plant. Oh, yeah. And the wood is gorgeous. I mean, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen anything, but if you went online and you put in carob wood, mm-hmm. uh, you would see amazing artwork and, and sculptural type things that have been made for it. It's not, it's very twisty is my understanding from woodworkers. So it's not a good load bearing wood. But in terms of smaller pieces of furniture, like using it for live edge tabletops. Uh, I think the most unusual thing I've ever seen made out of a salvaged carob is a Les Paul copy guitar where the veneer was carob. (laughs) Amazing. It's it's this gorgeous reddish wood. The heartwood is really gorgeous. So yeah, it is this, and that's why I think it's like so disrespected. It's like the giving tree, you know? Mm -hmm. It's like, you took this from me, you took that from me too. You know, you never appreciated anything I gave you. I gave you pods. I gave you, you know, seed that you could make this, you know, really useful stuff out of. I, I, and, and when I'm done with my life, I give you my wood and still you don't respect me. (laughs) I'm going to cry. What about the leaves? Do, um, I don't tell me like the leaves can cure like, dermatitis or something i'm like willing to believe anything there you know if it were better funded it's it's it would be interesting to see what you could do certainly when i started looking for scientific papers that there wasn't a lot out there on it but i did find a fair amount of uh is there are papers that are looking at the chemical composition of various components that the carob tree makes because the carob's full of phenols those are plant defense compounds those sorts of compounds often have medicinal uses. So certainly people have been doing research on that sort of thing, although I don't know of anything conclusive uh, yet. And like I said, partly because it's not, you know, it's not super sexy. Okay, so I started digging around and I found a 2017 study titled Chemical Constituents and Pharmacological Actions of Carob Pods and Leaves in the Gastrointestinal Tract. Not super sexy? How dare? How dare? But the abstract raved of carob that this plant possesses anti-inflammatory, antimicrobial, anti-diarrheic, 
antioxidant, anti-ulcer, anti-constipation, and anti-absorbative of glucose activities in the gastrointestinal tract. This was just in 2017. People are still finding out cool stuff about it. Other sources say it offers a plant-based amino acid linked to collagen production that's only typically sourced from animal products. It's also high in fiber and calcium and iron, antioxidants, protein. Another study that came out in 2018 said that it could be studied as therapy for neurodegenerative disorders. Our friend Carob, and yet people just let the pods fall on their lawns, like leaving money on the table. It doesn't get funded anywhere near as much as other things do. And then as far as the leaves themselves, I know goats can eat them. If you go on Twitter and you do a search on carob, the very first thing you're going to find are, you know, the plant equivalent of airline food jokes. What's the deal with airplane peanuts? (laughs) Which is carob jokes. (laughs) is the most formulaic repeated joke. You'll you'll see it weekly. Um, And then when you get below that layer, probably the second most numerous thing you'll find about carob on Twitter would be people, both businesses and actual pet owners, showing photographs of, you know, pup cakes, as they call them, or various, you know, baked goods that are, are made for dogs that are made out of carob. If you're not having the best day, you can change that by Google image searching the words eating a pup cake. Corgis in party hats, lapping at frosting. You got a mutt and a tiara seizing a treat like a shark attack. Oh, welcome to heaven. Population, carob. I think it's also... When I tried to get at, like, why it was that Carob just doesn't get respect, Mm -hmm. um, there's not only the sense of betrayal that people feel because it's sort of a misplaced anger, right? (laughs) So if if you've got a parent or somebody you trust and you're a little kid (laughs) and that parent or somebody you trust is saying, oh, here, try this, it's chocolate. (laughs) (laughs) And then you have Carob, right? And, And it's not the same thing. But you you can't appreciate that. You just feel betrayed. So people go all the way through their whole life going, oh, carob sucks. And it's like, no, it sucks that your relative did that to you. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's like if I I was telling somebody during this presentation, it's like if I am making spaghetti sauce from scratch, right? And one of the ingredients is is anchovy paste, which comes in a tube, right? And somebody decides to play a prank on me and switches out the tube of anchovy paste with a tube of toothpaste. And I put that in my spaghetti sauce, right? I'm not going to be very happy about it. I like toothpaste just fine when it's doing what it's supposed to be doing and when it's what I expect. (laughs) I have to go on the record here. I love chocolate and I Mm -hmm. love carob and they're different things. How do you eat them differently? (laughs) Like for you? Um, well, you can sort of make over chocolate recipes, and, and, and especially for people who have uh, religious or, or they're allergic, and there are people who actually do have chocolate allergies, you can achieve a flavor profile with carob that has enough similarities to like maybe be somewhat satisfying. But you see, the difference there is that you know what you're doing and you know what you're getting into. It's nobody telling you. This is Mm. just like chocolate, right? Right, right. You know, it's like you're trying to, you know, quit sugar or whatever. And so you go to stevia and you know that it's not sugar, right? Someone's got to make a cookbook. Megan, I'm talking to you. I'm hoping to come out with a carob cookbook at some point when I, you know, my (laughs) copious spare time. (laughs) Yeah. And I I went at it like I really think carob ought to be an ingredient on Iron Chef because people don't think creatively enough about it. Mm hmm. 
And it would be really interesting to see if you gave some really top chefs and say, here's your ingredient. What are you going to do with it? You know, that would they would have to think more creatively about it. And so I try to mm -hmm. return to it, what its flavor profile is like and go, what pairs well with this? And it tends to pair well with with spices like um, cinnamon and ginger and cayenne and, and cardamom, you know, things like that. Probably Chinese five spice, although I haven't tried that yet. Basically, I made a cheesecake that has a crust that's made out of super sharp and textural, like, you know, those Nabisco ginger snaps. And, mm -hmm. and then I fill it with a cheesecake that's carob with all of those spices in it, really. Except for, I'll be, go a little light on the cardamom if I'm putting the pepper in. That sounds splendid. Oh, uh, that's so good. <laughs> yeah, I get good feedback on it. I usually can convert people with that. I can't tell you how many times I've had people who they'd like to disc carob or whatever. Yeah. Uh, I make a carob-infused rum. And Ooh. no matter how people talk about how much they think carob sucks, I've converted <laughs> it every single one of them with that. <laughs> Oh, I love that you're out there being like a champion for carob. It does need to be looked at differently. It needs to be appreciated for who it is, not what it's not. 100%. Can I tell you something, bananas? Carob-covered bananas? Okay, so in 2019, a Food Business News article was forecasting culinary trends for 2021, which is now. And among them, your buddy carob, food trend reporter Elizabeth Moscow wrote back in 2019 that 2021 will be carob's year because, quote, they didn't position carob right in the 70s. It's not a chocolate replacer. When you're comparing anything to chocolate, it's going to fail. And Moscow continued to heap on pod praise, saying, I wouldn't be surprised if Starbucks came out with a carob syrup in 2021, saying it gives an earthy, yummy, naturally sweet flavor. Carob, get it. And it's like, you know, if you live in California or you, if you live in one of these Mediterranean climates, and it can actually go even a little further than that. I mean, Arizona is not a Mediterranean climate, and there are carobs, carob trees that have been there since the early 20th century as well, and they're still growing there. And there's a little bit of carob in Florida, although that's really not an ideal environment. And I'm given, the, I'm given to understand some people try it in Hawaii, too. Florida and Hawaii are a little too humid for it. In terms of that sort of tough tree where you're now moving into this drought prone super hot climate and have you heard the term urban heat islands yes yes i have and i certainly saw it in my research with carob because you know in a i think two or three block stretch of one street that i started my study on within just a couple of years of my doing my study 11 of these mature carob trees have been cut down oh my god why it's there's a variety of reasons i mean in those cases what happens you know like you were saying you know how do you select the right street tree and that sort of thing and 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 there are definitely like you were also mentioning disability issues in terms of the uh, sidewalks when they start to get pushed up mm. when care first started getting planted in california we didn't have this you know profligate ir irrigation we didn't have this sort of culture of like everybody gets a lawn mm-hmm 
And so carob was a wonderful tree to plant then. And, you know, there were other species that we also had that were very tough to uh, drought and didn't need a lot of irrigation. But then when people moved into those areas and either they put in sidewalks that weren't there before, or they definitely were putting in lawns that weren't there before. And the tendency in California is that you're going to be watering your lawn maybe three or more times a week for like 15 minutes, right? That's a shallow kind of watering. And if you put all your water on the surface, well, <laughs> they're like, where's the water? Well, it's up top. I'm going to put my roots up top because that's where you put the water. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Trees know what's up. And what's up literally is the water at the surface. Also, what is profligate irrigation, you ask? I only knew one of those words, and it wasn't profligate. So profligate means recklessly extravagant or wasteful in the use of resources. So what Megan is saying is that lawns in a desert are a great way to piss away good water. And so that's why you see sidewalks that might be uneven or they're getting pushed up by really surface roots. It's not always the reason, but often in California, that's often the reason. I mean, there are some species that will tend to do that. Like, so for instance, there are certain um, fig species that would mm -hmm. be more likely to have those big sort of roots pushing everything up. Fig, the kind of eating fig that we have can take a, a fair, you know, it's also a Mediterranean native, but probably more to like riparian areas or something. Maybe I know what riparian means. Maybe I don't. But if I were to look it up, I would find out that riparian means near a river. And so it craves water. It can deal with that without it for a while, but, but it likes it better. So it'll seek it out. Mm -hmm. But for other species like carob, if you plant carob from a seed where it's at, it'll grow a big taproot because it goes looking down for water. Oh, that's called a taproot. I didn't yeah. know that. It's well, tapping the soil, sort of tapping groundwater. Yeah. I mean, well, carrot is a taproot. Oh, I've never even thought about that. And it's just going, it's digging deep being like, hey, where's water down here? Yeah, the, the part we eat is the taproot. It actually, carrot, if you were able to preserve the whole root system, there'd be a whole bunch of other root hairs and things sticking out. But we eat the taproot. Oh, I never even thought about that. So when you see photos of a carrot, but it looks like two legs and a tiny dong, that's less weird than we think. And if the eating a pupcake search wasn't enough to send shimmers down your spine, Google carrots that look like dicks, but not if you're somewhere that you can't cackle, because that's really good. Poor carrots. I always am like, oh, I'm sorry, you did such a good job growing. And here I am just coming and being like, thanks. It's too many emotions in botany. Who knew? You probably did. <laughs> we can look at it as a sort of botany of desire thing, which is a symbiotic <laughs> thing. We help propagate yes. them. We help keep them alive, too. That's true. That's true. We will, we will plant your children if we can eat you. <laughs> okay, I guess. I guess. Just plant my kids. Plant my kids. That's all I asked. Um, can I ask you some listener questions? Yes. Yes. Is that cool? Oh, my gosh. We've got some great ones. Okay, but before your Patreon questions, just a quick word about sponsors who make it possible for us to donate to a cause of the ologist choosing. Um, this week, Megan selected Foundation for Science and Disability, FSD. They are a nonprofit organization affiliated with the American Association for the Advancement of Science, and FSD promotes the integration of scientists with disabilities into all activities of the scientific community and of society as a whole. So a donation went to them in Megan's name, and you can find out more at www.stemd.org, which is linked on my website as well as in the show notes, and that was made possible by these ward-approved companies. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. So is my brain. 
Here's a thought experiment. Think of all the time that you spend just scrolling on things or not doing the things you want to do. I know, time is the most valuable thing that you have. Boy, let me tell you, I had to learn this over time. You know what helped? Therapy. Therapy can help you figure out what matters most to you and how to prioritize it so that you like your life more. And where I learned that was better help. Because yes, I have been a client. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, I know how hard it is to get started. BetterHelp makes it very easy. It's entirely online. It's convenient. It's flexible. You take a quick questionnaire. They match you with a therapist. Instead of just Googling and trying to find someone with an opening, BetterHelp makes it very accessible. And I like that. It's also more affordable than traditional therapy. And you can chat. You can text. You can do video calls. You can do phone calls. For some reason, you are not vibing with your therapist. You can switch at any time. No extra cost. No drama. So let me tell you. Time is precious. Figure out where you want to spend yours. And you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash ologies today to get 10% off your first month. So that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash ologies. It's about time. KiwiCo. You know I love KiwiCo because making stuff and learning while you do it, the best way. And KiwiCo is great. They deliver seriously fun learning for kids of all ages. They have these hands-on projects and activities and each month kids receive crates that are engaging and that introduce them to things like science and technology or concepts and art. And I love that all the things you need are in there so you're not going to be running out to the store to get pipe cleaners. You're not going to run out of glue or something. And KiwiCo tests these crates with professionals and with kids to make them the best they can be. There's so many different projects depending on what your kiddo's interested in, what age or grade level they're at. You can discover the science of magic. You can engineer a domino machine. These make great gifts. I have given these to so many kids. And I also like that there's no commitment so you can pause or cancel crates anytime. So redefine learning with play. You can explore projects that build confidence and problem solving skills with KiwiCo. Get 50% off your first month on any crate line at Kiwi kiwico.com with the promo code ologies. So that's 50% off your first month at kiwico.com promo code ologies. They're going to love it. Did you know that Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? You can grow lemon, avocado, olive, or fig trees inside your home on top of the wide variety of house plants available. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days and along with their 30-day alive and thrive guarantee. They offer free plant consultation forever. Available 24-7, you can talk to a plant expert about your soil type, your landscape design, and they curate thousands of plants. They got climates, they got locations. I am stoked about this because I've wanted a fig tree for so long and I'm like, I don't know where to get the fig tree. I'm not quite sure where to plant it in the yard. And I went to the Fast Growing Trees website and I was like, boom, I'm in zone 10. This fig tree would work well for me. Done. And right now they have some of the best deals online, like up to half off on select plants. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code ologies at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at fastgrowingtrees.com using the code ologies at checkout. Fastgrowingtrees.com, code ologies. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. How you doing on that D, that vitamin D? 
could be better. I feel ya. Some of us are coming out of a winter. I don't know how much outside time you get. I don't know how your vitamin D is dietarily, but I know a lot of people, including myself, especially women over 18, 97% of us not getting enough vitamin D from our diet. Rituals like, how about I help you? They're a clinically backed multivitamin. So skeptics, here's a multivitamin that's like, yeah, we use science to formulate this. I think you're gonna like it. Ritual multivitamins are vegan. They're gluten and major allergen free. I also like that Ritual is a female founded B Corp. So they're doing good for the health of people and the planet. Ritual multivitamins are also gentle on an empty stomach. I like that when I open mine, they have kind of a minty essence. I've got Ritual vitamins in my belly right now, to be honest. I take them every day. They have kind of a lava lamp look with oil and beads inside. I also have their melatonin caps at night when I need to go bye-bye Z's. So no more shady business. Rituals Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust. And get 20% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash ologies. So start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. So that's ritual.com slash ologies for 20% off. Okay, your carob questions. This goes to your cultivation discussion. Megan McLean wants to know, when buying carob, how does one pick out the quality carob from the crap carob? Are there different types as found in chocolate? How do you go carob buying? I'm really glad they said that because a lot of people, when they're they're kind of crapping on carob because they th- think it's so far short of chocolate, they sort of um, conveniently forget that there's a big difference between cheap Easter 50% off chocolate mm. and um, Jacques Torres, you know. I, <laughs> there's a whole spectrum of, of, of chocolate quality. And just as that's true, there is a spectrum of carob quality as well. Um, I would say for me, what's important is that carob is naturally sweet. The pods of the best selected varieties are about 50% sugars. Uh, just naturally, like off the tree, you could eat the pod pulp and it would be sugary. Oh. So adding extra, uh, you know, cane sugar or whatever to that, it, it just makes it more sickly sweet. And especially if you're, if you're doing this sort of bargain bin, uh, bulk bin, thing where it's you've got a lot of hydrogenated vegetable fats that are added to make it more chocolate you just get this kind of chalky gross thing that's not good carob and that's what most people have an experience with there are companies like sunspire that make both kinds available a sugar added and a no sugar added version and i would absolutely encourage people to try what carob tastes like with no added sugar oh okay I'm not trying to plug specific brands. It's just that, you know, unlike chocolate, where you really do have this complete galaxy of brands to be choosing (laughs) from, um, there's just not that many people in the U.S. who are making products available. So even in a bulk bin, they'll, they'll, you know, if you went to someplace like Berkeley Bowl in Berkeley or whatever, you would see Mm -hmm. it labeled labeled as Sunspire. The importer for Australian Carabco products in the U.S., the sole importer and distributor, is a company called Azure Standard. And they have quite a variety of carob products available, including Australian Carob Co. Okay, I snooped on reviews online and one said, I'm not that familiar with carob, but wanted to give it a try. And I'm glad I did. Lovely, interesting flavor. Not chocolate, but I wasn't trying to fool anyone. That's the spirit. Okay, so you have yourself a bunch of carob, either in powder form or syrup. And you were asking me how I use it. The two major ways you're going to get a hold of it are going to be what's called carob powder. It's sometimes called carob flour and carob syrup or molasses. If you went to a Middle Eastern grocery, you would likely find carob molasses there. Oh. 
So if you live in a, a, in a city that has a Middle Eastern population large enough to support one or more Middle Eastern groceries, you will probably find carob molasses, uh, carob syrup on the shelf. And, and I would use that when I make my, my uh, cheesecake, for instance, I'm using that. Can you add uh, that to coffee at all? Is it used? Yeah, way? it's good. I love it with, added with coffee. Yeah, I mean, because I take my—I don't know how it is when you're when you like your coffee black, but for me, I sort of like my coffee. <laughs> I like my coffee to be as close to coffee ice cream as possible. Yeah, me too. <laughs> me too. <laughs> and it really gives it a really nice richness to the. It sort of enriches the flavor profile. I find as far as the carob powder, that's a lot easier to come across. Bob's Red Mill sells that, but mm-hmm. there are also other bulk places that sell it. And that you can really use one for one the same way you would use cocoa. Oh, okay. If you have a chocolate crinkle cookie recipe, you could make it out of that. And again, I would probably add those extra spices in there. Not that carob, I mean, absolutely needs it. I think adding the other spices helps get people out of the mindset. I didn't have hippie parents who forced it on me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I don't have those associations with it. But for people who do, I find that the added spices kind of get them out of that frame of mind that, oh, this is some cheap, you know, I wish I were having chocolate instead or whatever. Right. Um and Ethan Batone wants to know, I've only ever heard of Carob from an episode of Hey Arnold. Do you know about this pop culture reference or are there others <laughs> to Carob? Well, I have to say I'm older Gen X, so <laughs> I, don't, I don't, I'm not sure that I, is this Arnold the like PBS cartoon or something? Hey Arnold was a cartoon that featured one character, a child named Chocolate Boy, who is just a jittering, mouth-smeared fiend who tries to quit his vice by titrating via carob. And I don't think that it works out for him. Chocolate. 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 Do you ever catch in TV shows or movies carob getting hated on? Or have they ever oh, yeah. used it on, on like Food Network in a respectful way? I haven't seen it on places like Food Network or whatever. I wouldn't be surprised if it starts coming into that because, as I told you, when I first started looking for this stuff in 2013, there was a great deal less out there. In fact, even the Wikipedia entry was really, really sparse. And the Wikipedia entry is a good, reasonably beefy entry now. Mm -hmm. But just as there's a sort of locavore movement other places and just as a lot of other places are trying to rediscover their you know indigenous regional cuisines the mediterranean has been doing that as well and so cyprus and greece and italy and other places where carob has been an aspect I think that is really important of this is like, you know, in, in the U.S. and the U.K. and places where the, they had these sort of health food movements did this sort of disingenuous stuff with Karen. Mm-hmm. The reason it wasn't respected in its its home area quite so much seems to be linked to the fact, you know, again, like the giving tree. It's like it gave and it's gave during like some of the worst times they had. So they, you know, they had World War One, and then they had the, the Great Depression and then there was the Spanish Civil War and then there was World War Two and all through that period, middle class and, and poorer people were surviving on carob because oh. shipping shipping lanes and things were closed down during the war. Carob is a source of sugar, and from sugar you can also make alcohol. By the way, um, <laughs> mm-hmm. 
it's like anything, you know, you can like something, but if you're eating it 24-7 for weeks at a time, you might get so that you don't want to see so much of it anymore. Hence, a lot of people just stabbing carob in the back, slandering it, comparing it to something else entirely. Jonathan Kaufman wrote a 2018 New Yorker piece titled, quote, How Carob Traumatized a Generation. Now, unlike the nutty, pleasant flavor of carob, opinions on carob are not mild. What I'll see is a quote that says, like, carob is the devil's raisin or something like that. Oh, no. Something like that. And carob is Satan's raisin. Nicholas Zemp is a first-time question asker and wants to know, I've read that the processing involves using an acid or roasting to remove the skin of the seed. And has the same effect been achieved through fermentation? Essentially, like, how is it processed? The factories that do this have only recently started coming online. When I first started looking, I knew that this kind of processing happened, but I didn't, I couldn't go, you know, it wasn't like these factories had websites even that late Mm -hmm. in the game. They're starting to now, though. And I've seen progress photos of it being processed. You have to ask not just what's possible, but given that we're talking capitalism here, whatever's the cheapest is what's probably going to get done. Mm. Okay, so after you harvest a bunch of neglected, overlooked carob pods, you can kitchen process them by washing them and boiling it in just enough water to cover it or steaming until tender, and then you can cut open the pods. You remove the seeds, and you cut the pods into small pieces, and you dry them out. And then you put the pieces in a blender and grind into a powder and just process only small amounts at a time, according to some directions I found on permaculture.org. The seeds, however, get turned into locust bean gum, but they're really hard, so don't chomp on them with your teeth, please. And I did read a few studies that commercially processed carob powder has fewer beneficial compounds than home processed. So another good reason to ask your neighbors if you can eat their lawn trash. Now, what if you want to grow your own lawn trash? Some Patreon folks, including Austin-based Sutton Taggart, Maria Jurovleva's partner, Laura Springer, and Catherine Jordan all asked about this. And we have a few people that want to know, and I'll put their names in an aside, if they can grow carob in their backyard... One person, Catherine Jordan, from St. Paul, Minnesota. Can you do that? Or do you have to be in Italy, Australia, or California? (laughs) Well, in Minnesota, if you have a greenhouse that you can keep to non-humid Mediterranean conditions, then yes, you would be able to grow carrots. (laughs) I I grow, I, I don't own any land, so mine are grown in pots. That's not at all the ideal for what you're supposed to do, but that's what I do. And so mm-hmm. it is certainly possible to grow them in a pot. Once you get a carob into a pot, you, you're still going to have to water it more often than you would normally have to water it. But okay. if, you live, if you live in a Mediterranean climate or very adjacent to it the way that Arizona is, then yeah, you can grow it. And I would highly recommend that people do so because it's a, uh, part of the way it's drought resistant is that it has lower water needs. And it has lower water needs, partly because it's got very leathery leaves that make sure that the water doesn't come out of it as easily, Mm -hmm. but also partly because it's not growing as fast. And so it isn't a bit of an investment. I mean, it's not going to grow like a weed. It'll take a little while before you see something that grows taller than you are. Patron Rada Markham wrote in and said that there's a Jewish folktale about an old man being scorned for planting a carob tree because they supposedly take 70 years to fruit and he won't be around to enjoy it by then because he's already so old, which I think sounds very mean. But Raiden wanted to know, is there any truth to that or does it just make a good cautionary story? Is it true that it takes 70 years 
to give you pods or is that flim flam? No, that's, that, that's, as I said, I think that that came out of some sort of religious text or, or story rather than the reality. I should emphasize there's, because there's so little funding and because Carib does so much and is so good, even as it is, there actually has been no breeding effort whatsoever that I know of. I, what I came to grad school to do was to learn how to be a plant breeder. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of remarkable that it, does so many things so well. And this is just with very little improvement other than just going around the countryside and picking the best one you see and then clonally propagating that. Clonally propagating means that instead of just rolling the dice and planting some seeds, agriculture relies on things like grafting from a parent tree to ensure that they get really good genetics for good fruit. And apples and bananas, tons of crops are clonally propagated. Megan explains. In the Mediterranean and in Australia or whatever, what they do is they often will either plant the, the a seed out in the field, and then when the seed gets large enough to graft, they'll they'll graft or bud it. Um, and so the variety, if you're grafting or budding, you can get carob in anywhere from three to eight years. Kind of depends. Oh. If you're growing it from seed, it's definitely going to be longer, and I'm getting the sense that it's like eight to 12. Honestly, if you were to plant a peach from seed, you would also be waiting a while before yeah, you got yeah. a fruit off of it. <laughs> I have two more listener questions, if that's okay. Yeah, sure. Michelle Dempsey, Ava Schaefer, and Heather Nanette all kind of want to know that, well, their questions are similar but different. So I'll, I'll read Michelle Dempsey's. Michelle Dempsey says, I've seen articles suggesting chocolate has nifty qualities, like containing antioxidants, has blood pressure lowering abilities. What sort of nifty qualities does carob have? And Heather wants to know if it produces endorphins. Well, because it doesn't have that stimulant property, no, it doesn't doesn't produce endorphins like that. It does have its strong points, just as chocolate also has some strong points. What it doesn't have that chocolate has is lots of funding to study what those are, (laughs) because any group that sells something will usually fund scientists to find out what can we say about our product. So there's a lot of funding like that. It's one of the things that I, you know, going back to school has been super interesting to me because it's given me the ability to be a lot more critical about this sort of things, you know, and I had a, a good, well, you know, broad education before, but it's just made me realize how much more critical we have to be when we read certain things, especially if they're not linking directly to the study. Yes, I'm sure that there are things that chocolate does. Carob has a slightly different profile. It's somewhat high in protein for a fruit. It is high, I think, in potassium. It's a relative thing. You know, I, I don't know that I'd put it up next to a banana. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, but you know it's a slightly different nutrient profile as well but as far as like there being a miracle you know cure for whatever that all remains to be seen i'm not going to say it doesn't exist you you have to have the funding to go looking for that sort of thing hmm. we had some first time question askers three of them had the same question tara tiger studio Jolene n louder and samantha ryan Uh, Samantha said, so people tend to go all in for the latest food trends without considering the environmental impacts of our increased demand. And Samantha has seen a lot more Carob products in grocery stores in the last few years. Hey, Carob, bring it on. But (sighs) Samantha is curious as to how sustainable it is as a food source. And Nicholas Zemp also thinks that's a solid question. I think, I mean, I think it's really rather sustainable because, as I said, it can be grown on lands that are marginal for other sorts of crops. It can take 
a range of pH, but, you know, it tends to grow in sort of like more alkaline, rocky. It can grow even, you know, anywhere from adobe soil like we have in Southern California is not ideal for it, but, you know, there's these 80 to 100 year old trees there. So I think like anything, it's kind of like what you, how you decide to go about it. But I think one thing that you can say will keep it from being too destructive is the fact that it actually doesn't like a lot of water. So if you plant it someplace that's really, you know, that shouldn't be getting irrigated a whole heck of a lot, carob won't do well if you're irrigating it a whole heck of a lot. Mm. So that actually keeps it into, it keeps it in its lane, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Good to know. Last Patreon question, but I thought you would appreciate that Wells Howe. (laughs) had a question that what the heck even is a carob and why have I never learned that those dried brown snake bananas hanging in the trees are edible? <laughs> so Wells Howe's life is now changed <laughs> because of you. <laughs> I like I like snake bananas. It's a very good band name. <laughs> snake bananas. <laughs> when I break off from my band and do a solo project, right? <laughs> snake bananas. The best. Um, last questions I always ask, last two. What's the shittiest thing about carob? What sucks the most about the trees or the process or anything, whatever gets your goat? Well, there's a lot of things I could come up with, but I think I'll come up with that item, which is that that they're so underappreciated, I think, is what sucks for me and that Mm -hmm. they're maltreated. So like a lot of the stuff that people like to complain about about them. So cities will say, oh, this is unsuitable for planting here. And it's like, well, you know, if you don't hire people whose expertise is trees, if you hire people whose expertise is being in a cherry picker and using a chainsaw, mm. and they don't know about the, st- the species they're dealing with, and then you maltreat the species, why are you blaming the species, you know? Right, right. So that's that's the worst thing, I think, is just knowing what an amazing, cool plant this is for Mediterranean climates, and how, you know, really selflessly it gives, and how much credit it takes. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think it's the worst thing. Um, oh. And certainly in the process of doing, you know, those, the field work where I was going from street tree to street tree, it really hurts when you come back and you see a stump. Mm. Ugh. I know. I cry every time I read The Giving Tree. Every dang yeah. time. Yeah, yeah. I, I tweeted out from my account today a 2016 story from the East Sider LA, which was a photo of a carob tree that was cut down and somebody had made a memorial to it. And it had like on gold ink on a black background, it had this whole, you know, like essay, but in big, big letters was like, why? No. (laughs) No one listening to this will walk by a dried brown snake banana the same (laughs) way. You know, you'll say thank you. And maybe if you don't mind, I'll chew on one of you. For a moment (laughs) as I walk down the street. Now, as a person who walks down the street, I am privileged in that sidewalk cracks don't derail my day or typically threaten my life like they would some folks, especially those who use any mobility devices. And one thing I love about Megan is how great of an advocate she is for all kinds of people. And she founded UC Access Now this past July on the 30th anniversary of the Americans with Disability Act passing. And she released something called a demandifesto calling for better design and inclusion and accessibility, not just for herself, but for other University of California students with disabilities at every campus. Because because she is badass with a big heart. You have a really obvious disability. You don't have a choice. Everybody knows you're disabled. In my case, nobody would know unless I told them. Uh, okay. 
And so because they're still, you know, it doesn't matter that on the books it's illegal to, to discriminate on that basis. The fact is that people do, just like people still discriminate about race, sex, and other things that are illegal to, to discriminate about. Yeah. So uh, I made a decision very early on that I had to be very out about it because I figured nothing really changes. You know, it's kind of like coming out day is for the queer community, which is mm -hmm. that it's a risky thing, but if we all do it together, then people will realize this is not this weird, rare thing that they can easily other. We are their mm -hmm. friends, we are their family. And I think with invisible disabilities, at least, the more out people feel they can afford to be or are willing to take the risk to be, the more we'll realize, no, look, this is not this weird, rare other thing that you're trying to make it. This is part of the spectrum of humanity. It was not my goal to be an activist. And in fact, one thing that I've found other disabled scientists have said, and it was certainly my experience as well, which is that if you have the temerity to bring this up, they say, why don't you go be a disabled advocate? You know, you're clearly not interested in science. Uh. <laughs> as if you can separate those parts of yourself. You know, as if you aren't interested in more than one thing. It's, that's very frustrating. What do you say to that? Well, uh, <laughs> it's hard to know what to say to that. I mean, you know, because... Uh, by this point, I, I should start rehearsing an answer to it, really, because <laughs> mm. in, in the moment you just get so furious about it. Yeah. Because if anything, I'm showing how deep my interest is that I'm willing to ford through all the crap you're throwing in my way. Mm -hmm. And have you gotten to see the way that your efforts have impacted other people in your sphere and other people in STEM? Yeah, it, it's a lot of work and you take the victories where you can get them. But yeah. um, <laughs> I mean, I've had I've had people who've who've told me either publicly or privately that I really helped them realize that the way they were communicating was inaccessible and that it wasn't that hard to make it accessible. And mm -hmm. so they've changed the way like a lot of accounts on Twitter. And this includes even government accounts. Here's something you could do when, you know, watch Twitter. If you see your state or county or a politician on their official account, and this is how you can tr check whether it has what's called alt text and image description. Mm -hmm. And uh, you can certainly watch for, if it's a video, for instance, you can watch whether it has captions. If it's mm -hmm. a press conference, did the press conference have an ASL interpreter there? Are there video descriptions going on for the blind? You know, these sorts of things that they can just check for. And it's not too hard to then, you know, talk back to those public Twitter accounts and hold them publicly accountable for that. What people who are blind who have, you know, visual impairments use to access the internet and the, uh, Twitter is something called screen reading software. So mm -hmm. the screen reader, just if you don't put anything in the alt text thing, the screen reader will just say image. Oh. All the people who are blind or visually impaired, whether they're in STEM or not, they're just hearing image. Oh. That sucks. And of course, this exists for web pages as well. There's alt tags on web pages and stuff. But mm -hmm. in Twitter, the alt text character field is a thousand characters. So it should give you a little space to do that. And if it's too big for that, then you can always do a Google Doc and then link to the Google Doc and the tweets so that you can give you know, blind video. And, and don't like censor it for people. It's like if it was important enough for you to tell people who are sighted, 
then tell mm-hmm. people who who have uh, who are blind or have visual impairments exactly the same thing that you're giving to sighted people. Yeah, I didn't even know that there was an alt text field. Why would you want to make accessibility something that you have to dig for and opt into? Why sh- why isn't that the default? <laughs> yeah, yeah. God, that's such a good point. And that's something that unless you hear someone speak out about it or unless you know someone in your life who that affects, you might be just completely naive to it. I think the work of advocates, I imagine that must feel very heavy at times, how much education needs to happen. I mean, I'm in terms of my physical disability, I'm running at over 25 years of having it right now. Mm-hmm. And because I wasn't born disabled, you know, I was raised in this ableist society and very much with an ableist view of things. So it's taken me that long to throw off all the, you know, I'm still not entirely 100%, I can't say <laughs> of it, mm-hmm. but you, you have what's like an internalized ableism. So even though I was very out about it from the beginning, I also still had that sort of idea that had been inculcated into me that, oh, I don't want to be a problem for anybody or, oh, I don't, you know, rather than saying, no, wait a minute, I'm just as worthy of these things as you are. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Was there any um, sort of any other advice that you'd want to give to anyone who is disabled in STEM or is looking for a career or just kind of start their journey that you you wish you knew or any kind of words of wisdom or pep talk? I'd say definitely, uh, I mean, there are probably other social media networks, but I know I probably wouldn't have made it to grad school if it had not been for being on Twitter. Science Twitter helped me find out about things that I didn't know existed. And what it's done, especially lately, uh, when I first got on, there were not a lot of sort of visibly disabled scientists. I mean, what I mean by visibly is that they're out about it. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think... People are, you know, a, a lot of social movements and the radicalization of, of in very ways, various ways that have, have has gone on in terms of opening people's eyes to forms of discrimination that have been going on for a very long time um, is starting to sort of open the doors as far as disability and the awareness of ableism as well. So which that what that means is that you're more likely to find disabled scientists to speak with and just even if they weren't like mentoring you, just knowing that there are other disabled scientists out there really, really helps. Mm-hmm. I love the I love the different hashtags, and I love I love that you can pop on them and then follow a bunch of new people, and then just just you know make a bunch of new friends online that tell you what their lives are like, and you're like, that's great. You just made my world better. And speaking of the best stuff, but your favorite thing about carob or carob trees. What, like, just lights your whole heart up? Again, there's so many things to choose from, but I think I think that certainly as far as the work I've done, what's most gratifying is what you just said, which is that you don't see it the same way. People, when they see you, like, standing in front of their street tree taking notes, they kind of come out of their houses like, what are you doing? And, <laughs> and um, so I've had that experience a couple times where people have had a talk with me and I you know, once I assure them, no, I'm not from the city or no, I'm not, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm not here to to case your house for a burglary. Um, (laughs) uh, I've had people come back to me and said, like, I totally took this tree for granted before. And it is so much more interesting than I thought it was. And I really want to make sure I'm active saving these trees now. Oh, my gosh, that's so beautiful. That must feel so gratifying. 
It really is. I mean, I you know, it's uh, it's hard as a student, and I, I'm sure I'm not the only one who struggles with this, but for somebody who comes with my bachelor's in art, especially, you know, there's sort of inferiority complex you have around whether you're really a scientist or not. Mm -hmm. And at least I can say that I'm effective enough at communicating the sorts of facts that I've learned and what I've observed from my fieldwork that I'm able to persuade people. And really, what more do you want? Because, you know, most people are not going to be looking up scientific journal articles. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So to have the passion and the will to communicate it is, is such a service to the data that you're collecting and and the appreciation and preservation. Oh my God, this has been so fun. Thank you for letting me pepper you with so many spicy questions. I've learned so much. Oh, sure. No, my pleasure. So ask giving trees selfish questions, but make sure to appreciate them for who they are and let them live. And ask smart people basic questions because you never know what is right under the surface in the treasure trove of their knowledge. So follow Megan Lynch. You can find her on Twitter at May underscore gun and at Access UC. There's going to be links to those socials in the show notes and at my website, alleyward.com slash ologies slash carabology as well as a link to Megan's first album and so many links about Carob's history, where to find it and more. Again, check iNaturalist to look for the nearest one. Tell me if you eat them, please. I would like to know. I am at Allie Ward at Twitter and on Instagram. Ologies is at Ologies. Now, merch is available at ologiesmerch.com. Thank you to Bonnie Dutch and Shannon Feltis for managing all the merch. They host a comedy podcast called You Are That. Um, if you're interested in hearing how Ologies is made, you can check out Renee Colvert's recent episode on her brand new podcast called My Pandemic Makeover Spectacular. Uh, she had me on as a guest and she asked me all about life work balance and quitting your day job and Renee is just a human delight. I love her. So I'll link to that on my website too. Thank you, Erin Talbert for adminning the Ologies Podcast Facebook group. Again, if you're looking for a hot date and are single, I don't know, join the Facebook group Flirtology Singles. None of my business. Thank you, Emily White and all the transcribers for making transcripts available and accessible. They are at the link in the show notes for free alongside bleeped episodes for school use. Uh, thank you, Caleb Patton, for bleeping. Thank you to sweet, sweet Noel Dilworth for all of the interview scheduling and calendar wrangling. And thank you to assistant editor and fiance and midnight cheerleader, Jarrett Sleeper, who hosts Quarantine Calisthenics every weekday at 9 a.m. on Twitch at Jarrett underscore Sleeper. And of course, the locust bean gum that holds this pod together. Lead editor Stephen Ray Morris hosts the podcast See Jurassic Right, the Percast, and now a brand new one, a new Star Wars podcast called Everything But the Movie, a Star Wars book club podcast. And I will link that on my website as well. And if you listen through the credits, I tell you a secret. And the secret at the end of this is that I got some carob chips that I've been saving to eat. And I'm not going to make any gross smacking noises because I know nobody wants that, but I am going to try one right now. Mmm! Dude, this is good. If someone gave it to you and said, try this chocolate, you'd be like, mm, that's kind of whack chocolate. But if you just try it being like, try this, it tastes like a really nice smoky caramel. Okay, go get yourself some carob. Bye-bye. Pachydermatology, homeology, cryptozoology, lithology, nanotechnology, meteorology, They're carob bars. They pair perfectly with carob juice. Awesome.
Carob is nature's chocolate. Hi, Max. I wanted to share something with you. I wanted to tell you how grateful I am and how you've embraced your sobriety since day one. I'm grateful for how you changed your life. I'm grateful for the love you have for me. I'm grateful for you. Love, Mom. If your loved one is still struggling with addiction, you might not feel like you'll ever get to grateful. But we can show you how. At Karen, we've helped families overcome addiction for 70 years. So if your loved one is ready for something different, visit caron.org slash lost.